If you will take your Bible, we will be looking at it tonight in, um, in several places this evening, and we will be continuing our discussion of the Holy Spirit tonight. The title of this evening's message is How Not to Treat the Holy Spirit, How Not to Treat the Holy Spirit. We, this morning, focused on one particular sin against the Holy Spirit, and that's when we grieve the Holy Spirit by causing Him pain or sorrow. And that may raise some questions in your mind. I talked to a pastor one time who visited a church here in Arkansas, and one of the things that we have seen over the last few years is that there are some churches that are fairly isolated, have great difficulty getting pastors. And in some of those smaller membership congregations, they have gone for a significant period of time, if not years, without a, a Bible teacher. And I know at least two pastors um, who told me that when they first went to those particular congregations, there were individuals who were attending that church that did not have a biblical understanding of who God is. They didn't know what a trinity was. Now, the word trinity is not found in the Bible, but all three persons of the Godhead are found in the Bible. When Jesus is baptized, for example, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, and you hear a voice from heaven, the Father speaking, saying, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so you have all three persons of the Godhead present at one time. And so we believe that God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, but there's one God. And there are all kinds of ways, attempts to try to reconcile what our minds cannot grasp. I would not encourage you to try to explain it. I would accept it as true. So the Holy Spirit is a person. When I was starting out in ministry, we didn't talk a great deal about the Holy Spirit unless we made a great number of qualifications. We talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just didn't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. We were very, uh, there was such concern about uh, what was happening at the time. There was a charismatic movement in this country that in some expressions of it was having a really deleterious effect on some churches and towns. A Bible study would start up in a town, some church members would start attending it, and before you knew it, that Bible study would break away and become a new church. And so a lot of people were concerned about the doctrine that was being taught by the Holy Spirit. So there was a lot of controversy about it. The Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit speaks. He has a will. He's to be obeyed. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing him speaking and being obeyed. Uh, we see that he is referred to as a he, not an it, which if you study the original language, that's really striking because in certain languages, words have uh, feminine uh, qualities and masculine qualities and neuter qualities when, they, when you talk about gender. And if you use certain words with them, they have to have gender agreement. If you use a feminine noun, you have to use a feminine adverb and a feminine particle to go with it. Well, when you come to the word pneuma, which means spirit in, in Greek, um, you would expect that the personal pronoun used with that, the pronoun used with that would be what? It. And in fact, that creeps in sometimes into our language when we talk about the Holy Spirit. I remember a song one time, a choir in a church I was singing uh, was in. They were going to sing, send it on down, Lord, send it on down, referring to the Holy Spirit. That was unbiblical. 
He is not an it. He is a he. And so the Holy Spirit is a person. And when you and I recognize that when Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, my Father, I'm going to pray to him, he's going to send you another comforter, he's going to be with you forever, essentially he's saying, I'm going to come to you, I'm going, you're going to see me, you're going to have a life, you're going to know me through the Holy Spirit. And he is to be for you all that I would be for you if I was there in person, but he's going to continue this ministry that I began with you. And so just as Jesus went before his disciples and they followed him every day, so the Holy Spirit is to have that same role in your life and my life. If you study the book of Acts, you cannot escape this continuing ministry of Jesus through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He's still leading, still guiding, uh, still empowering the church. And the Holy Spirit is clearly the one in charge. Well, when you trusted Jesus, this person, this who is God, came to live inside you. In fact, Paul, when he writes about this in 1 Corinthians, he says that, that you have become one spirit with him. And that more than just inhabiting you, the Holy Spirit has merged with your human spirit. You become one spirit. And, and I can't wrap my mind around that, but, but Paul actually teaches that. And so you're not only indwelled, you are made one in Christ. There's a union that you have with Christ. The Holy Spirit makes it happen. And so if he's a person that stands to reason, there's a relationship involved there. We're to walk in the Spirit. That involves a relationship. We'll talk more about that next Sunday morning, I think. There's a relationship involved. And, and so we must be attentive to him. Every bit as much as if Jesus were standing here in person. We need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. And so this morning... I touched on this issue of grieving the Spirit because I believe that makes it absolutely clear. You can't grieve a chair. You can't grieve a glass on a shelf. You can't grieve an inanimate object, but you can grieve a person. And it just makes it very clear that he is a person. And we have this relationship with him, and it's a wonderful relationship. He lives in you and me to communicate to us the very presence of God. He is there to lead us, guide us, direct us, empower us. He is, in a sense, our down payment on heaven. The Bible describes him in those terms. He's our guarantee, our warranty, that what God has started, he will finish. And so he is there to be for us all that Jesus would be if we could see Jesus in the flesh. I believe it's important for us to understand not only what I shared this morning, but in a broader sense, how are the ways that we sin against the Holy Spirit? And so for the next few minutes, I just want to cover these. You'll need your Bibles. I'm going to give you the references. So if you didn't bring your Bible, you can at least write these down. If it's of interest to you, you can go back and read it. I hope it is of interest to you. There are seven sins against the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament. And I believe they can be put into three groups. Okay? There are seven of them, and they can be put in three groups. Here's the first group. Sins committed by non-Christians. These are sins a Christian, by definition, can't commit. But a non-Christian can. And so, what is that? Well, here's the first one, and I'm dealing with the big one first. It's just going to get this out there, and we'll get it over with. Blasphemy against the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Spirit. There are two passages of Scripture that talk about this. Uh, they are lengthy passages, 
but let me give you the, the background and the setting on both of them, and then I'll read uh, some verses that I think will underscore this. Blasphemy against the Spirit. In Matthew, Jesus has been casting out demons. The religious authorities are, are questioning the means by which he does this. They suggest that he does this, has this power over demons that nobody else has, and they've never seen anybody else have that kind of authority, that Jesus has this authority because he is somehow under the influence or inhabited by or controlled by Beelzebub, the prince of the flies, which is a euphemism for Satan. So here's what Jesus is doing under the direction of, of the Father, the Holy Spirit in him, guiding him what to say, guiding him what to do, and whatever power is expressed is an expression of the power of God. And, and they are saying that this work of God is not a work of God. They're attributing this work of God to a work of the devil. Now, what's the problem with that is that if you're a person who doesn't know God, the only way you're ever going to know God is if the Holy Spirit reveals him to you and draws you to him. And so if you blaspheme or reject the work of the Holy Spirit, completely reject the work of the Holy Spirit, you have no way of knowing God. Now, this is not something a Christian needs to worry about. Because if a Christian has already trusted Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives in them, and, and, um, and we could say a lot more about that. There's other passages, I, I believe, that speak to this issue. No one can say, Lord, uh, call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's passages like that. But in Matthew 12, for example, just listen to what Jesus says uh, when he's accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub. He says in verse 27 of Matthew 12, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's at work. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house, like the devil's house, and plunder his goods like demonized people, unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So you can see that a Christian can't do that. Now there's a, there's a lot of speculation about this passage. What I've shared with you is my best understanding of it. That what Jesus is describing is someone who is rejecting the obvious work of God, the Holy Spirit, and saying, no, that's not God, that's the devil. And... Um, Similarly, in Mark, I think it's even more clear in Mark's version of the account. In uh, Mark 3, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And so Jesus made the association with what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? They were saying the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a demonic spirit. And you cannot work with the Holy Spirit if that's what you believe. So, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a sin committed by non-Christians. There's a second sin that appears to be committed only by non-Christians, and that's resisting the Spirit, found in Acts 7, verse 51. 
This statement occurs during a speech by Stephen, who has been arrested for sharing the gospel. He's about to become the first Christian martyr in, in history. And he has just said, you know, he, he uh, is recounting the history of Israel. And the Pharisees, Sadducees listening to him recount this history at first, oh yeah, this is good. He's telling the story of Israel. This is good. This is good. And then he says, uh, and, then, and then Solomon built a house for the Lord. But, but God never said he wanted a house. And he quotes scripture to that effect. And then he says in this verse, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And then he goes on and says that your fathers killed the prophets. Everybody that God sent, you killed them. They were telling you what God wanted them to, to say to you, what God wanted you to hear. They were giving you words that were given by the Holy Spirit of God, and you resisted them, and you killed those prophets. And so a lost person, in this case, can resist the Spirit. By the way, if you're a person that believes in a doctrine of irresistible uh, grace or irresistible drawing of the Holy Spirit, uh, this is a verse you have to reckon with. Because it says very clearly in the text that these individuals, that the Holy Spirit was dealing with them and they resisted the Holy Spirit. Can a person resist the Holy Spirit? According to this passage, they can. They can. A third sin that's described here in the Scripture uh, that appears to only be committed by non-Christians is found in Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 29. Insulting the Spirit. Now, your translation may have a different word. Insulting is perhaps the best way to translate it. Uh, other translations use the word affronting the Spirit, outraging the Spirit, despising the Spirit, mocking the Spirit. It doesn't sound good however you, you describe it. Let me read this passage and see if you can pick up on what this is. Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. The fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish people or people with a Jewish background. And on hearing the gospel, some of them rejected it. And they went back in their minds to the sacrificial system where you had to offer a sacrifice for your sins. And he says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can keep doing it. But there's no sacrifice left. The sacrifice that matters has already been accomplished. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses in the Old Testament, somebody who broke that law, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace or insulted the Spirit of grace? And so the picture that, that is formed here in this particular case is of a Jewish person who is absolutely committed to the sacrificial system as the only way to get their sins forgiven. I sin, I have to go through the sacrifices. That's what it says in the Old Testament. And this writer is saying, you're rejecting Jesus Christ, who is your perfect sacrifice. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit who's communicating this truth to you, you're offending him. You're outraging him. You're insulting him. You're saying he's wrong. You're saying he's not good enough. You're saying that this new life where you walk by the Spirit instead of walking by rules is not good enough. And so that appears to be 
the idea behind insulting the Spirit. Now, the rest of this list are sins that you and I should pay very careful attention to. We can get caught up in blaspheming the Holy Spirit and thinking about that, but these other ones are more serious. The second set category are those sins committed by the Christian or the non-Christian. I believe we're included in this, in this section. And there's two of them. Number four, lying to the Spirit. Lying to the Spirit. You said, can I lie to the Holy Spirit? It's happened. In Acts 5, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira who were living in a, of a revived uh, environment where the Holy Spirit was present and active. You had people like Barnabas, son of encouragement, who sold pieces of property and took the proceeds of that and donated it to needy ones inside the church. And in that context, that, that got the attention of people. And so Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, and they wanted to be seen as donating the proceeds. They wanted to be seen as spiritual, in my opinion, as uh, good peoples, great people, worthy people. But instead of giving the whole price or profit from that sale, they gave only part of it and kept some of it back. It was just a game. Nobody knew about it. Holy Spirit knew about it. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There it is. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. See, the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, and you, you go through the motions of obedience, but you haven't fully obeyed. That's lying to the Spirit. Holy Spirit says, did you do what I said? And you say, sure, I did what you did. And you know you didn't do what he said. So why have you lied, he said. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Uh, he seems to suggest there that they could have sold it, kept what they needed for themselves, and given that, and that would have been perfectly all right. But that's not how they presented it to the church. They presented it as, here's everything from the, those proceeds. Seems subtle, but it's something that you and I can do. When the Holy Spirit prompts you and I to do something, the only response you and I should give is immediate obedience. Unthinking, immediate Right now, I believe God's leading me to do this, and we do it. And you say, well, that just seems like a, um, a difficult way to live. Jesus said it's a liberating way to live. You don't have to make all those decisions. You don't have to figure everything out. And this concept of recognizing when the Spirit is speaking and obeying right away, not arguing, not pretending, I didn't hear that, but doing what he says, it's, it's a discipline. It's a way of growing, and, um, and we don't want to lie to the Spirit. Uh, a second sin that's described here, I believe a Christian or a non-Christian can do it, that's tempting the Spirit in the rest of this story, in verses 7 and 9, tempting the Spirit. And the word tempt here means to subject someone to a trial or subject someone to a, to a test to see what they're going to do. In uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, you know what happened to Ananias? He dropped dead. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said, yes, for so much. She was lying. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? As if this wouldn't be discovered, as if he wouldn't know about it, as if this wouldn't be found out. 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And she dropped dead. I tell you what, offerings would, would improve, wouldn't they? In that kind of environment. I would be impressed for sure. And uh, so tempting the spirit. And those are those moments where I think no one knows what I'm doing. I can do what I want, and I can get away with it. No one sees what I'm doing. No one sees what I'm thinking. I'm not exposed. This is a case where the Holy Spirit said, I can expose you anytime I want. And he did. And because they were thinking they could get away with this. And this is the young and early church. And he's making a very strong statement about the role of the Spirit. Well, the third category is this. Sins committed by the Christian. And there are two sins here. These are only committed by Christians. Only Christians can commit these next two sins. Here's number six. Grieving the Spirit. We talked about it this morning. It occurs in Ephesians 4, verse 30, but let me, let me read the context so you can hear what's happening here because these two sins, 6 and 7, relate to one another, grieving and quenching. I want you to hear this. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How amazing would it be if you set your heart this week that the only thing I'm going to say to someone is something that's going to build them up that it's going to give grace to them, something they don't deserve, but I'm going to bless them. And I'm only going to speak in such a way that builds others up. That's what he says here. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And remember that word means to cause pain or sorrow. And then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That's passive along with all malice. Meaning somebody's going to take it away from you, but you've got to let go of it. And the suggestion is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to take this out of your life, but you've got to be willing to let it go. And then he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the picture of grieving the Spirit. I grieve the Spirit by things I do and say that I shouldn't. Things that I let come out of my life that he doesn't want to come out of my life. Um, saying something that I shouldn't have said. And, you know, we described that this morning in terms of the spirit like a dove and the dove leaves. And, and if, as you grow in your walk with God and walking with the Lord, there are those moments where as soon as you say something, you know you said that something you should have said. Has that ever happened to you? Now, maybe because you said it and your wife gave you that look. That's not the Holy Spirit at that point. But there are other times where you say something and you hang up the phone or you walk away from that conversation and you think to yourself, man, I don't feel good about that. And not always, but often, it may be the Holy Spirit saying to you, Don, you let something come out that shouldn't have come out. And you have grieved me. And so uh, grieving the Holy Spirit by what comes out that shouldn't come out. The seventh sin is very similar to that, quenching the Spirit. This is our last one. And this is not sinning against the Spirit by letting something come out that He doesn't want to come out. This is just the opposite, keeping something in He wants us to do. The first one is what we do. The other one is what we don't do. Quenching the Spirit is what we don't do. And, uh, it, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, He says, Rejoice always. This is a function of the Holy Spirit in you. This is part of abiding in Christ, 
having communion with Jesus. We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. You're talking to him. You're in this relationship with him, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. And then he says, do not quench the spirit. This is what he wants to come out of you. Do not quench the spirit literally means don't put out the spirit's fire. The fire's burning and you just douse it. And then, as, as if that wasn't clear enough, he says, do not despise prophecies. Prophecies are those things that God brings to mind that he wants you to speak. You're in a conversation with someone, and, and God brings something to mind he wants you to say to that person. You're in a, a teaching session. Something comes to mind. You know God wants you to say it. You're studying, and you're putting something together, and God puts something on your heart, and you know God wants you to put that down. He wants you to say that. He wants you to do that. Don't despise prophesying, he says. Don't despise that. Test it. He says, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Not everything I say is good. I mean, I want to be 100% in everything that I say, but I look at some of the things I preached when I was younger, and I cringe. I mean, we grow, we learn. And so even as you hear a preacher or a teacher, you're supposed to be filtering that through your best understanding of the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit applies it to your mind. Is this you, Lord? Is this true? You don't take my word for it. I'm not, I'm not your uh, spiritual authority in all things. So here he says, do not quench the Spirit. And this is that thing where the Holy Spirit is prompting you to speak, prompting you to act. And you say, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to go there. I believe these are the easiest sins for us to commit on a daily basis against the Holy Spirit. The moment we do, if you and I are earnest in seeking Him and earnest in our desire to walk with Him, I believe that, that you will feel that shift in your soul, that you will sense when that happens. Is that because you're super spiritual? No, because it's a function of the Holy Spirit to convince you of sin and judgment and righteousness to convince you of what is wrong, to convince you of what is right, to convince you that there's an accountability for the, your behavior, your actions. And so when you step away from or out of this thing that the Holy Spirit has for you to do or to say, something in you should sense that the Holy Spirit has withdrawn, that you have grieved him or quenched him. The dove flies away. So I would ask you tonight, really, just to be sensitive in your own heart. And um, I know some, sometimes we, we get caught up in our sins, uh, some of us in a morbid kind of way where we just are always feeling like I never get all my sins confessed and, and because I can't get all my sins confessed, I just do so many things wrong that I'm totally unacceptable to God and I can't have a relationship with Him. But the truth is that conviction of sin is a function of the Holy Spirit. If there's anything you need to confess, he will bring it to your mind and you will know. You will know who and when and what and where, and he will make it clear to you. That's his job. And so as you deal with the Lord, as you want to walk with him, as you seek him, as you shut yourself away with him and you spend time alone with him, as he brings things to mind, you can confess those things. Lord, I agree with you. That was wrong. That was sin. I did not want to grieve you. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. And, and as I mentioned this morning, the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit 
is that his forgiveness is instant. The restoration of that fellowship is immediately available to you. He does not hold a grudge. The dove does not fly away and say, I'll come back in a day or two when you've straightened up. He doesn't do that. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing process. And no, the Holy Spirit still lives in you. He still indwells you. He does not physically leave your life. But your fellowship with him is affected. And the last thing you want is an indwelling spirit who is grieved with you. 